Hello, welcome to the Patterpod. Uh, this is what I'm going to call season two, because there's been quite a long gap between this episode and the ones that have come previously. So we are launching straight into season two about a year after Patterpod first launched in 2020 in, during the first lockdown in England. And I'm delighted to welcome our first international guest. This is Emma Brown. Hello, Emma. Hello, Alex. Where are you talking to us from today? I'm talking to you from Leiden in the Netherlands, which has been in the news recently because a lot of the vaccines are made here. And I've lived here for, I think, 13 and a half years. But you are, you're from Nottingham originally? I'm from Nottingham originally, yes. We should probably just talk a bit about how we know each other. My recollection of meeting you was via BBC Radio Nottingham at a carol service at Nottingham Cathedral. Yes, that's right. They contacted me because I was in the Evening Post and I was singing for the 90 years anniversary of the Men in Gate. And I sang for them. This was in Passchendaele in 2017, it must have been. And they asked me if I was interested in singing in their Christmas carol service. And I thought that would be wonderful. And I turned up and you were the conductor. I was there. Bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, had no idea what I was doing. But we had a good time, I think. Yes, we did. And it was also, I thought it would be quite tense, it being not a live broadcast, but basically a live recording to be broadcast later. But it was actually very relaxed. Oh, good. That's nice. I take full responsibility for that. (laughs) No, There was just something about that team that was just a pleasure to work with. Uh, And I vaguely remember the um, sort of celebrations afterwards as being quite, (laughs) quite a lot of fun as well. Yes, it was. <laughs> but, for me, it was also a sort of homecoming because I had sung in the cathedral choir as a child and the presenter was a year above me at school. So there were all these connections going on. Ah, great. So from singing in the cathedral choir when you were a youngster, how did you get to be then based over in the Netherlands? After school, I took a gap year and lived in New Zealand, travelled around the South Pacific I went to Cambridge and read music and I wanted to go to conservatoire, preferably in continental Europe and preferably um, in English, i.e. not having to improve my French or German to to, learn, to do a second degree in French or German. And I realised the Netherlands was perfect because the primary language of teaching here is English. Um, it's easy to get home. It's it's quirky it's familiar and it's very easy to get to France or Germany or Belgium wherever I mean I'm 16 minutes by train away from a big international airport so it's it's not a bad place to be yeah for um, for international singing work so you are a professional singer now uh yes or at least I was until the lockdown (laughs) (laughs) if you look at what I've earned in the last year I'm not sure if you could call me professional but um Yes, I I was working a lot, particularly in remembrance and singing for veterans before the first lockdown. Okay, so I imagine then the whole 100-year anniversary of World War I was quite a big sort of spell for you. Yes, I sang the official US ceremony, which was held in Belgium in a US cemetery. And I also sang at the memorial at Chiapfel on November the 11th. That's the huge memorial in France with, I think it's 72,000 plus names of missing soldiers from the Battle of the Somme. So there's also buried ones elsewhere. Um, and in and around Ypres, I was in Tynecourt as well, which is also a massive cemetery in Belgium. Yeah. And was solo singing, uh, was that always sort of what you wanted to end up doing? 
Well, I was always told I was too loud in a choir. Um, and I was always told I was too loud and I couldn't blend. And eventually choir masters in their despair started telling the other singers to blend with me. Oh, wow. And okay. I, I was always put on, they always would seem to put me on the most difficult part. So if the top soprano part was too high, they made me sing it and then complained that I didn't sound like a little boy. Um, but if the altos were struggling, then I was suddenly put to alto. And this is a sort of recurring pattern in my life of choral singing. And I love it. Yeah. But no, I have, um, I'm more of a French horn than a, a nicely blending flute, shall we say. <laughs> so as a, as a solo singer, have you, have you made many recordings? Oh, I've made a few. I've made some with um, amateur orchestras, which are not really commercially available. And I have two commercially available. One is songs to do with remembrance and veterans. So no surprises there. And that's called Echoes of War. And we were going on the launch tour for that CD and then the lockdown started. So it's sort of on hold. But it is out. It's on Spotify if you look up Emma Brown, Echoes of War. And the other CDs um, yeah, are now for something completely different. I got asked to sing with a rock group that they're a rock group that do arrangements of classical music in their own symphonic way. I work with a guitar player in Budapest, who's also classically trained, and we always joke that deep down every musician wants to be a rock star. And I have to admit, it is so much fun standing on stage with that much noise going on around you, yeah. communicating to an audience. And it was my biggest gig before lockdown. We were in Amiens Cathedral in northern France with about a thousand people. And went back to Holland and a week later I was in Romania lecturing about English song, <laughs> as you do, uh, flew back to the Netherlands and a week later we were in total lockdown. So it's also, um, and that was also the launch of the album we'd recorded. Yeah. It's so much fun. You feel so powerful with that much noise going on. Oh, wow. If it's about power kicks, I have to admit singing with military orchestras when they're, you know, uniformed officers, that's, that gives you a power kick as well. And even male voice choirs, I've, I've sung one Christmas, um, I was in Delft, which is where the Dutch royal family are all buried in their massive Christmas Eve service. And I had a, a male voice choir and there were about 150 of them and, uh, you know, conducted by a man, accompanied by a man. And I was the only woman on the stage. And yeah. it does give a slight boost, I can tell you. But um, rock music is is the new um, big boost of wow, this is fun. In terms of the the sort of music that you sing, uh, what sort of stuff do you like singing? What do you end up? Yeah, let's go with like. Like uh, Brahms. Um, <laughs> straight in. Straight in, yeah, with Alt Rhapsody. I like singing music that is really written for mezzos or contraltos and that's not to say that it's necessarily low it's that when it goes high it demands that you take all of the richness of the bottom of your voice up high with you so I'm studying El Rhapsody this week and, and absolutely loving it um, Mahler is also a wonderful composer for, for contraltos and there's of course Elgar sea pitches and there's this wealth of music from the turn of the, the 19th to 20th century a time when female contraltos were in fashion. Nowadays, sopranos tend to be the stars, but back then it was people like Clara Butt. And there's some gorgeous repertoire for them. 
most of it's a bit politically incorrect because it's about the empire and it's got loads of things that we should, we're not allowed to say yeah. these days. So you have to be careful in what you pick, but it's beautiful and it's well written. And it's in English, so there isn't this barrier of constantly checking that your pronunciation is okay, yeah. um, which there is, in for me at least, in French, German, Italian, where I'm always a little bit conscious that I'm not a native speaker. Yeah, and it, well, it takes a lot more time, doesn't it? It's, and it's time which is spent not on the music itself. Yeah. Do you know the Vaughan Williams Magnificat? It's for a mezzo. It's for mezzo soprano, upper voice choir, uh, orchestra, and <laughs> obbligato flute. Um, oh, that would be amazing! You, I think you'd love it. You sing it really well. I think it's a proper sort of mezzo piece, and I think it's really effective. It's basically assessing the Magnificat, but with the Hail Mary in there as well, and the flute guesting as the Holy Spirit. So in terms of growing up, was your family very musical? Was there always music around in the house? Both my parents love classical music and Radio 3 is a pretty permanent feature in their house. Mm. Um, when I was a child, I was, I dare say, obsessed with Mozart's arrangements of Twinkle Twinkle Little Star. <laughs> Piano variations, I don't know if you know it, it was, we had a video of it and I would watch it over and over again. And at one point we were burgled and the video was taken. <gasps> And I don't know if it was my 18th or my 21st birthday, but my father presented me with a DVD of it. And I remembered every note, even though I had no memory of ever watching it before. And the music I really loved on car journeys was Tchaikovsky's Violin Concerto. And that was also quite extraordinary because I didn't know this. I just found a CD at my parents' house of the Violin Concerto and thought, oh, I'm not sure if I've ever heard Tchaikovsky's Violin Concerto. And I started playing it and realised I knew it, and I knew it very, very well indeed. Ah. Um, and my mum explained to me that this was the music that I would demand that was played in a car um, and would be very excited and would uh, bounce up and down to it. So. Oh, fascinating. Was it always singing, or did you play a musical instrument growing up? I played piano and clarinet. And I think the love of Tchaikovsky also comes through ballet. I did a ballet at a ballet school in Beeston called Redhead Scott. And every two years we did a, a mini ballet production of a, a well-known ballet. So we did The Nutcracker, Coppelia, uh, Romeo and Juliet um, in a condensed version that was easy enough for, for the, the children to dance. Yeah. And I've always loved ballet music, but I think particularly Tchaikovsky and then Later, we, we visited his grave a few years ago, but later it really struck me that this was a, a gay man in Russia who was forbidden to have relationships. It would cost him his life to if he had a relationship and it was found out. And he had a career writing about heterosexual relationships, many of which are either so pure and innocent and in children that they're almost impossible... Or if you look at his operas like uh, Eugene Onegin, they're 
so doomed and such a failure. And then you see it through a totally different lens. Yeah. If you look at the composer in his context, the serenade for strings, for example, has a lot of pain in it. Yeah. That first movement. I feel Tchaikovsky really wrote from the heart. And of course, he was writing for a ballet. He was writing for the St. Petersburg public. But it was very honest, vulnerable music. And I mean, if you take the serenade for strings, for example, the opening, it's a C major scale. I think it's in C, which descends, uh, sort of meanders around a bit and then finally finishes. It's orchestrated and um, and harmonized with so much pain and so much emotion. Mm. I don't. I, I feel I can't fault it. tastes are now how has that evolved i would say my musical tastes are eclectic <laughs> in the extreme i have a spotify subscription and at the end of each year it tells me my top songs and it can be anything it can be contemporary choral music eurovision disney rock classical you name it it's the most eclectic top 100 and of course because it's spotify it can't distinguish between what i've been listening to to study and what i've been listening to for for pleasure yeah and then there's a whole other category of music for running for sport which he doesn't understand <laughs> yeah. um the best story about that was my my fiance who's dutch I, I sometimes study music in the car on the way to a gig and in 2018 his top track on spotify remember he's dutch was the Belgium national anthem because I had realised in the car on the way to Belgium that I was going to be expected to sing it, so I'd better oh, wow. learn it by heart. And this poor Dutchman, which is such an insult. I don't know what the cultural equivalent would be in England, but it's not good. <laughs> Should we launch straight in? Sure. Uh, tell us about your first track. So the first track is Tchaikovsky's Violin Concerto, and this is the piece which... I, as a child, insisted was played in the car. Yeah. And I would dance to it. And I loved it. And it, it, specifically the first movements. And it's because there's a theme and you hear it. And then he doesn't let you hear it again for a very long time. And when he does, it's with trumpets and it's everything. And it's amazing. So you, you sit listening to it and you want the theme to come back so much. Mm. And then he's sort of like, no, 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 not yet. It's really like dangling chocolate in front of me, but not letting me grab it. And I didn't know how much I love this piece until I discovered it later. And my mother told me. Yeah. So it's, it's this very weird experience of thinking I'd found a new piece of music and discovering I already knew it. 
I think that sort of way round is sort of fascinating, where you know sort of connotations of a composer or where it sort of fits in terms of musical history. Have you heard it live? No, I've not heard it live, but I have various recordings of it. At the moment, I love Ivory Gitlis. Okay. Um, that's an amazing CD. The opening of the Sibelius Violin Concerto, he can play a single note and you'll get six different colours as he holds it. It's really oh, wow. intense. It's really, it's also on Spotify. It's really worth listening to. Okay. Um, but I know that that's not the recording that I listened to as a child. And that's another weird thing because, for example, I do know that I listened to the Barenboim recording of Mozart's 21st and 27th Piano Concerto. I know this for two reasons. Firstly, because it's one of the few um, recordings where I can work or read without being distracted by the music because I know it so well. Yeah. But secondly, if I hear any other recording, I'm put off because something isn't quite how I expect it to be. Yeah. Oh, isn't that interesting? Weird. And it's all from early childhood. Oh, it's so deeply embedded. Yeah. Oh, that's great. I don't really know the violin concerto at all. So I was listening to it today in the car and the theme, I was like, this reminds me of something. I can't quite put my finger on it. And I thought it's probably some sort of film music thing. And... Uh, I'm probably going to ruin it for you now, but it's there's just a bit of it that reminds me of Han and the princess theme from Empire Strikes Back. Which is Uh, great because I've never seen Star Wars. (laughs) Have you not? Oh, wow. Oh, goodness. It's... um, And it's just that outline that... uh, It's just like a tiny bit of the theme where I'm like, oh, my gosh, those notes are just taking me right back to that moment in Star Wars. Um, oh, that's brilliant that you're not a Star Wars fan. I mean, it's not. I'm... I might be a Star Wars fan. I don't know. I think, well, in terms of your musical choices, your list today, I think you'd love the music of Star Wars. I mean, that's basic. I love Star Wars, but quite a lot of the reason why I love Star Wars. I mean, is you love music. music, but you don't love romantic music. How does that work? It doesn't. It... <laughs> I know. It doesn't work at all. I don't know what it is. I feel as if I'm going to be one of those people later on in life who will just be all about the romantic stuff. And I'm already, I, I remember when we did, in Nottingham, we did the Elgar Dream of Grunchius. And oh, that's amazing. I remember, <laughs> I remember putting on a recording going, I should probably get to know this. And I fell asleep during the overture. <laughs> I was like, this is like Victorian sludge. And I just, I just don't think I'm going to be up for this. Then I sang in it and... I fell in love with it and now I like I get so emotionally wrapped up in this piece every time I hear it. And then a few years ago, Opera North did the ring cycle in Nottingham, semi-staged. And I thought, okay, well I'm I'm into film music. I should probably <laughs> the guy who invented leitmotif and sort of made it, you know, what it is and inspired all these film composers, I should probably get to know a bit of Wagner. So I sat through how many ever hours it was of all four. You hours. went to all of it. You went from zero to marathon. Yeah. Um, wow. And it was it was intense because the first opera had no interval. And it's, I can't remember how long it is, but it's it's fairly long. Uh, and I, I got to the end of it and I was just like, there's just so much music here. I need to just have some time away from it and come back to it. And then went back started listening to bits of the operas again and then suddenly realized there's like why people are so obsessed with Wagner and those operas and I thought "Mm, yeah I can see myself 
getting obsessed by this, uh, particularly in later life. But at the moment, I've uh, <laughs> I found this album, which is um, about seventy minutes long, and is basically all the best bits of the whole Ring Cycle in one album, with no singing, just the orchestral bits of the orchestral music going through. And it's it's keeping me ticking over until I get to that point in my life where I want to sit down with the score and you know that's lush though to have that condensed version. Oh, it's great. And <laughs> although you do think at the time you're like this bit that just took five minutes was about half of the opera. Uh, <laughs> so the <laughs> sort of proportions are all a bit weird, but yeah, that's definitely something I need to explore a bit more. I'm not very good when people tell me, oh, you should listen to this or, oh, how have you got a music degree, but you haven't listened to that? <laughs> you think, well, you know, time is limited. I have a, a friend who is on the music staff at the Dutch National Opera and he insisted I went to see Parsifal with him in a dress rehearsal mm. um, because he was appalled that I'd managed to have a music degree and not do, not see Parsifal. So I dutifully went along and he sat next to me and fell asleep. <laughs> <laughs> not the best advert for Parsifal. Not at all. It's very beautiful, but it's like getting into a long haul flight. You've just got to relax and hope there's no turbulence. <laughs> I like that. I like that a lot. Uh, Marvellous. Great. Well, thank you for that uh, choice of Tchaikovsky. Tell us about your next track. The next track is by Stephen Sondheim and it's called Finishing the Hat and it's from the musical Sunday in the Park with George. If I remember rightly, it's a long time since I read about Sondheim, he wrote Sunday in the Park with George after another musical had received a lot of criticism and he and James Lapine decided that they would just write something for themselves. And I think it's a wonderful musical. It's about George Surat, the painter's... Um, struggles with creativity and originality which of course was what Sondheim was struggling with and it showed me the importance of integrity in any creative project or indeed in life Mm. and finishing the hat particularly appeals to me because it describes going into a zone and a sort of creative zone so the scenario in the musical is that uh, George is painting a hat and has completely neglected taking his uh, mistress or girlfriend out to the follies because he's been so absorbed in painting this hat, he's forgotten everything around him. And that for me is very familiar. If I'm composing, I will quite readily forget to eat, sleep, talk to anyone who's in the room, you know, because I'm so absorbed in actually what a... A performer or a listener would see as being quite a small detail but of course compositions are often quite a lot of small details with very careful decision making and it's very nice to know that my my moments my crazy um moments when I'm composing when I sometimes I stand up from my desk and realize that my bladder is very very full and I should have gone to the lavatory a long time ago um I'm not the only person who does this yeah I adore this musical and it's one of those, we had a, a module at university called Britain and Sondheim. Really? Which... We didn't have that. Uh, it Honestly, it's worth all of the tuition fees. Well, the lower ones that we had. Back then. <laughs> uh, it was so good. And it it really, because with Britain, I, I remember going to see the War Requiem in my first year and not getting it at all. But then 
at the cathedral, we were singing things like Rejoice in the Lamb and A Hymn to St. Cecilia, which I just adored. And then I got to know the ceremony of carols and conducted it at uni. And I thought, this is so good. And then when we did this, um, this module, I got really turned on to a lot of the operas and just a lot of the music of Britain, but also Sondheim as well, who was a composer that I didn't really know much about. The, the film version of Sweeney Todd had come out around the time we, when we were at university. So a lot of us had gone to see that and our interest in Sondheim was just sparked. But we didn't really talk that much about Sunday in the Park with George. And it wasn't until sort of after university when I was sort of exploring the rest of his musicals like Merrily We Rode Along and A Little Night Music and stuff, I came across this. And as a, as a fellow composer... There's so much of it that you just can relate to and you think, ah, someone gets it, (laughs) you know? That's the experience that I've got. But also with, there's a line in it with relationships about you, that the person who will wait for you is not the person you want to find waiting. (gasps) That you need an equal. You don't need somebody who's going to sort of sit around and say, yes, dear. Yeah. Oh, that hit home. It's so true. Yeah. I'm saying this knowing that Ronald is drinking whiskey with one of his friends whilst I'm talking to you. He is not waiting for me. (laughs) Finishing the hat. How you have to finish the hat. How you watch the rest of the world from a window while you finish the hat. Mapping out a sky. What you feel like planning a sky. What you feel when voices that come through the window go until they distance and die, until there's nothing but sky. And how you're always turning back too late from the grass or the stick or the dog or the light. How the kind of woman willing to wait, not the kind that you want to find waiting to return you to the night. Dizzy from the height. And how did you how did you first come across the musical? We had an extraordinary teacher at school. She's still one of my best friends. Um, her name's Jill Scott, and she arranged a Sondheim musical. I, she did do other musicals, but when I was there, it was always Sondheim. And every two years or so, um, we were allowed to audition to take part. And I was in an all-girls school, and the musicals were very exciting because there were boys in them from the all-boys school across the road. <laughs> this is very important. Um, so I discovered Sondheim through her and actually through singing it that when I was 11, we did Into the Woods and I had a starring role as a tree, one of many, because she had the common sense that if you let all of the first years take part in the musical, then you would sell you know, more tickets because mum and dad would come and watch. And I remember from my English GCSE, English language, we were allowed to write something we had to do an informative piece of writing so I chose to write about Sondheim's life and works and read a lot about it I think Sunday in the Park with George is my favourite precisely because of what you said about it reflects the creative struggles so well Mm. but I also love um, Someone in a Tree which is from Pacific Overtures which is um, the situation is Japan and they're trying to work out what happened when foreigners started arriving in Japan in the 19th century and they had this very private meeting, but it turns out that there was a, a boy watching in a tree, so he could watch, but he couldn't hear. And then it turns out that there was a soldier 
um, underneath the building keeping guard and he could hear but he couldn't see and so you can put these two stories together to have an idea of what might have happened but of course the, the boy was a child so his memory has changed and the soldier is now an old man so he's dementing yeah. so in this song you have the 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 adult giving his recollections and the child correcting him and the soldier as the old man giving his recollections and the young man correcting him. And you just see how impossible it is to be a historian and to get any view of what actually might have happened. Yeah. So clever. And the way he does this, it reminds me of the way composers like James Macmillan juxtapose texts. So there's something going on on stage and each performer is focused on their part of it. But when you sit in the audience and you put the pieces together as a whole, you you can draw so many beautiful conclusions. Yeah. Yeah, uh, Pacific Overtures, I don't know at all. So I must uh, I must get into that. Sunday from Sunday in the Park with George is a piece that I have done quite a lot with community choirs. Oh, nice. Because I just, I love it so much. And it's one of those pieces where you can tell in rehearsals, it's a bit of a slog because they just don't really get it. And they don't really, uh, they just think it's a bit dull. But then when you program it in a performance and it's usually near the end of a concert you can just see the transformation where they suddenly get it as a piece of music and there's sort of emotion behind it which is funny because that's described in bit by bit putting it together <laughs> earlier in the musical <laughs> yeah <laughs> oh good piece good piece do you have any other sometime favorites in terms of musicals and i love into the woods it was my first contact with sometime which of course helps but also, as a child, when I learned about fairy tales, I always had a lot of unanswered questions. Ah. And here was this musical that answered them, or at least showed me that the questions I had weren't totally crazy. Yeah. Um, and I find it very beautiful looking at the, the sort of idyllic aspects of childhood and the reality of adulthood and actually that in some ways the struggle is more beautiful. That's also a theme in Follies where yeah. older people are looking back on the relationships they missed when they were younger. Yeah. Nice. Let's move on to your next track. My next track is the Magnificat of Arvo Pet. And this for me has two resonances. The first is that it was my first contact with minimalist modern choral music yeah and I thought it was amazing how a piece which is normally six or seven minutes actually seems to take so much time but it's never boring and the conductor I was working with who's Ralph Olwood I was on an Eton choral course talked about it that it's almost as if the the time of the piece is actually the journey to Bethlehem from the Annunciation it's it feels like a journey yeah and the simplicity of it and the soprano solo that's just a sea shining out throughout with this focus I thought it was stunning and the second reason for this significance is because it was at that Eton choral course where I realized that I could actually sing because um, for example at the cathedral I was singing the solos in the responsorial psalms a lot St. Mary's also singing as a soloist, but I was constantly told by choir masters that I should blend, that I should hold back. Mm. And on this Eton Choral course, there were 72 of us, and I have a recording of it. We were singing 
Pulank, uh, Vinia Mea Electa, and there's these these et barabam moments, and I think they start on a G or something. And I was on first soprano, and <laughs> you just hear Emma. You you don't hear much else. <laughs> and the choir master said, "Why are you singing so loudly?" And I said, "It's fortissimo." And he said, "Yeah, but you've got to blend." And I went to my singing lesson and cried because I said, "I don't know. I don't know what I'm doing wrong. Why can all these other singers blend? Why can't I blend?" And this singing teacher looked at me like I was insane and said, but Emma, they are singing fortissimo. They don't have any more. They don't have to hold back. You have a very big voice. You have a solo voice Mm. and you should really not try to sing in choirs because singing in choirs can, and toning down a a large voice can be quite damaging. Yeah. And that for me was really the first moment when I realized, um, oh, just because I've been told by choir masters to sing differently it doesn't mean I'm a bad singer it just means I'm not an ideal choir singer and what also happened on this course which was quite amazing um the teacher said suggested I looked at some songs by um, Richard Strauss and I went to the library and there were lots of volumes of Strauss so being lazy I picked the smallest which had four songs in and they were the four last songs (laughs) I didn't know how important they were but I ended up performing in Abendroh right I think I was 17 in any case far too young to sing in Marvin <laughs> also it was a lot more comfortable for me than, than Poulenc in a choir yeah yeah my first experience of singing this piece was uh, in a choir where tuning wasn't necessarily a skill set that a lot of people had so the whole experience for me was sort of ruined because I was looking at the page going this should sound a lot better than it does um and then listening to a recording of it and being so excited about those beautiful dissonances and they felt so right. I love a semi- semitone clash me. Oh, it's so good, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it was, for me, it was also, um, well, it was a revelation about what contemporary choral music could be. Yeah. Um, because I realised there is, there is so much you can do um with church music which is i believe acceptable liturgically but still fresh and new and yes i i can understand the problem with the tuning especially in in pairs but also in tabernacle i think mm. it's very easy to look at the notes on the page and go oh yeah that's quite easy but actually it's not it's probably much easier to sing a fugue yeah yeah completely <laughs> have these clashes it's almost a bit like mozart and like playing sort of piano sonatas of Mozart where it's so clean I think on the page and it's therefore you're you feel a lot more exposed and it's quite neat and this is neat in a very different way but there's I think the thing that I really took away from the piece when I did it again with a slightly better choir was it taught me a lot about space and the space between notes and the space between sections and the subtlety between not just staying in 4-4 four, four, like the whole way through a piece. And uh, yeah, that's what I love about Paris. It, it feels very well thought through and very well constructed. Yes, he went in a silent retreat for years because he wanted his music to be extremely pure. So I think it's also, I think, easy to fall in the trap if you're trying to write minimalist music of thinking it's simple, but actually um, to have to sustain something that moves that slowly to sustain interest and bring suspense 
whilst not letting it move too much is a very subtle process. Yeah, and I think the thing that I've always found with this, uh, now that I've done it a few times, like it doesn't feel it doesn't feel repetitive for me no. at all. And I, and as a composer, I think that's quite a unique skill actually to sort of spin out that material and for it to feel fresh and interesting. I think it's music that is really an experience. I think most people who hear this Magnificat for the first time, it has a huge impact on them, but they don't go away singing anything. They don't necessarily remember a fragment of the music or a melody or, you know, like in the Howl's Coleraig, that they remember the glory of being spectacular, but they just remember a very special and amazing atmosphere. Do you know any other parrots? I want to sing My Heart's in the Highlands. Actually, that's... Uh, oh, we okay. have um, Here in Leiden, we have, I think, the only Willis organ on the continent. Right. And we have a very nice organist, and she's open to all sorts of projects, so I'm hoping to do that. Nice. And I know that the Linnemass Mass and... Spie- well, everyone knows Spiegel and Spiegel, of course. Yeah. I remember hearing the Beatitudes on... Oh, they're amazing. ...of recording, and then got the score and I was like oh that's what's going on <laughs> yes and then did it with um did it with the choir and I said to them can you can you not go home and listen to a recording of this because the way the the parts sort of interweave and cross over each other it's going to be a lot more difficult I think for you to do that so just like treat it in the um because actually when you look at it on page because he's using his Tintinabi D style it looks very constructive and you're like, oh, that's just an arpeggio. But actually, when you put it together with the other parts, that's... But you, you hear a line that doesn't exist. People will hear whichever yeah. note is highest, whether it's the soprano or the alto that's singing it. Yeah. Such a... I love that piece. Can't I love that. the organ at the end. <laughs> oh, wow. And do you know the Ave Maria, by the way? It's quite short. It's in Russian. Blagovrodits. Oh, yes! Yeah, and that's, that's another piece of his that I remember listening to and didn't realise it was him at all. I've never done it, but it's uh, it looks quite fun. I went to a concert, um, St John's College Choir came to the Netherlands and they programmed the Rachmaninoff Ave Maria and then they went straight into the pet as a sort of postlude. It was beautiful and it worked so well because it just lifted that atmosphere out of the Rachmaninoff.
tell us about your next piece. My next piece is Short Ride in a Fast Machine by John Adams. subscribed to the BBC Music magazine and every month we would get a CD and one month it was Adams and I loved it and it was new it was fresh and it really does feel like you're in some sort of roller coaster or spaceship or whatever and I listened to it a lot and I was 17 I think and I listened to it on the train to Oxford for my Oxford application for the interview and I was rejected. So for a while I had quite a miserable association with this piece because quite often if something disappointing or difficult happens, the music you're listening to at the time becomes associated with it. Mm. A year later I got accepted by Cambridge and three years later I had to choose a piece for my analysis portfolio. And I decided to choose the John Adams partly out of stubbornness because the music department didn't necessarily take contemporary composers seriously, at least not contemporary composers who wrote in an accessible way. Yeah. Um, they wanted the more hardcore modern stuff. But also for practical reasons, which is that I knew this piece very, very well from listening to it over and over again. So in what was already a very busy year, I knew I'd saved myself quite some hours by choosing a piece I already knew. Yeah. And this was a wonderful experience because... I already knew the piece by analysing it. I actually loved it even more and became more fascinated by it. And I, I talked about there being a, a sonic background, which is this constant buzzing noise, which most machines or cars have. And I tried to analyse if there was any pattern or repetition in this buzzing, or whether it was more like, you know, the, the Messian, is it the symphony for the end of time where it just never ever seems to repeat a cycle properly or yeah. at least it takes a very long time well I didn't what was weird was what sounds logical when you hear it didn't seem to have a logical pattern it was uh, I guess that's how most scientists lives are that you spend hours and hours hoping to find something and then discover it was random <laughs> did you ever listen to it whilst running no, what I can tell you, I don't know if you drive, but never ever try to drive too short ride in a fast machine. Yeah. If you're like, you'll respond to the music and not to the road. It's um, it's that bit near the end where the uh, where the trumpets just come in, they're sort of layering on top of each other. <laughs> where I go, oh no, there's a speed camera there. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yes, need to watch out. <laughs> but... My boyfriend would not let me drive listening to Tchaikovsky. <laughs> <laughs> it's like I'm not safe in this car anymore. 
Oh gosh, comes with a health warning. Let's let's go on to your next track. Tell us a bit about. Well, I think we've got some Guno. We have um, this. The next track relates to me living in Leiden in the Netherlands, and it's a song I sang during a church service for the city. Um, every year, Leiden has a big party on the second and third of October to celebrate the end of the siege of Leiden by the Spanish in fifteen seventy four, and. The it's a city party, and there are some quite old traditions connected to it. One of which is going to the Peterskerk, which is one of the two cathedral-sized churches here, um, for a service of thanksgiving. And the a, a part of the Dutch military plays there. So when I sang Sanctus for the first time, I was with the Royal Navy Orchestra. And a year later, I sang it with the Royal Air Force Orchestra. Yeah, that's right. And a choir. And it was firstly quite a big event because although I'd sung with the military orchestras before, I hadn't sung with all of them and they make quite a lot of noise. But secondly, it was my realisation that I really was part of this city that they'd asked me to sing at their big event and that most of the people in the front rows of the public I recognised. And it was, when you live abroad, there's always this little part of you which thinks well I'll never really be accepted here because I'm not Dutch you know Yeah. and then I realised at that service oh okay I am part of this town and it's and it, I'm welcome and they like me and it also was very nice because they clapped which you're not supposed to do in the church service but uh, they did this spontaneously so that made me feel so welcome here Yeah, it's interesting having left Nottingham which I've called home for like the last 14 years, but always feeling like actually is is Nottingham my home? Is Ireland my home? Where do I feel as if I belong? And you're right, it's that moment when you when you're in a concert situation and you you see people that you recognise in the concert who are there to support you and and you have that moment of, oh yeah, this is this is maybe where I belong and where I have that sort of sense of home. It's so nice, isn't it? And yeah. music does that. Um, yeah, it's in a sort of, big way. Yeah, and it's, it's particularly with yeah when you're in a, a new area and you're getting to know people, and music is almost like a, a fast track way of getting to know people and getting them to understand you. And that's fascinating. That.
this is yeah. So this is a piece that I I don't really know much Guno apart from his Ave Maria arrangement. Uh, Who doesn't? <laughs> but, <laughs> uh, which I could quite happily never sing again in my life. The first piece I ever got paid to sing was the Bach Guno Ave Maria. Oh, really? Okay. I got a ten pound book taken from it. <laughs> And I know I would have spent it pretty quickly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I bet. So the Sanctus is one of those pieces where it's making me miss live performance quite a lot because you've just got that wall of sound. I can imagine in a sort of live setting just feeling all these people singing together. So powerful. I'm being jealous of the timpanist because I think deep, deep down we all want to be playing the timpani. <laughs> Yeah, another uh, uh, musician that I always love watching in a concert setting. Tipitis and, well, percussionists, I think, generally. Uh, oh, it's it's really the fun section, isn't it? Oh, it is. And you can, t- they look as if they're having a great time, even though they're, it's one of those where you think, oh, they've just got to that instrument just in time to play those three notes, and then they have to dart across the stage. And you can see that the rest of their colleagues are um, just having a great time. It's also, they always make jokes about the triangle, but actually, the, if there is a triangle ping, it is usually at the most magical point of the music, the point of the music where, which everybody remembers and cherishes. And if you play the triangle, then you get to shine at that moment and you don't have to do anything else. It's wonderful. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know why there's this stigma around it. Also, I imagine it's quite stressful because I, I, I remember being asked to play percussion at university because uh, there were percussionists down for something. And I think I was playing cymbals for something. I think it was a Debussy piece. And I, I mean, I, like, I could count and I knew when I was meant to be playing and stuff, but it was the pressure of, I need to do this at exactly the right time and make sure that I'm counting these bars rest accurately because it's going to be really noticeable I know. When, I, <laughs> when I come in wrong. Yeah, exactly the same with the try. Oh, goodness me. I was playing timpani in our in our school orchestra, um, and the the girl who was playing percussion was ill for the concert, so they, they were just like, "Oh, we'll get Emma to do it." And I'd never played timpani before, and I was a bit nervous. And it got to the performance, and it was Schubert's Unfinished Symphony, and I went boom boom, and a bar later, the rest of the orchestra. Went, <laughs> <laughs> oh no. <laughs> you make a mistake it's uh, there's no hiding great well you know we'll look forward to hearing uh hearing you and seeing you star in some sort of percussion role in the future <laughs> <laughs> i'll be in the front Animal. row <laughs> <laughs> let's move on to your next piece so it's Holst's jupiter which i love um and i chose Holst's jupiter rather than i vow to leave my country because i actually prefer it as jupiter mm. um but i've sung it a lot as i vow to leave my country and I first sang it solo in Bayeux Cathedral in Normandy on the 6th of June at the 71st D-Day anniversary. Right. And this is one of these slightly extraordinary stories that I was in a pub and I met a conductor who recognised me from living in Leiden. And we got talking and he asked me if I was interested in singing with his orchestra at an event and I went along and after the event, he said, oh, if you're free in two weeks' time, we're going to Normandy and I can't pay you, but I can cover all your travel costs. And I wasn't free, but I looked in my agenda and decided to move all the appointments and go to Normandy because it was fun and I liked the orchestra. And I really liked the idea of going to France and singing. And I knew it was the D-Day 
commemoration. So I thought that would also be wonderful. What I didn't realise is that they were singing the Royal British Legion <laughs> service. So we had the French ambassador there and everyone, and no one thought to tell me this. And so I was standing in Bayeux Cathedral, and a friend from the, the military had lent me her officer's one, which is the formal dress code of the military to wear in Normandy because she thought it would be nice, which is great, except when you're in a building with genuine military attaches, you feel a bit of an idiot (laughs) (laughs) that you're not entitled to wear. And it was from this tour of Normandy that I got invited to do more singing for Remembrance. And I love this work. It's very special. And I realised there's various factors at play. One is quite simply that I'm a mezzo-soprano and I'm often having to sing hymns in their original key with brass bands so I'm singing in the middle of my voice and that's a part of the voice which a soprano or a tenor would struggle to be heard over the orchestra and I think secondly because of you know being an altar server um, singing in church choirs there's a certain discipline in a remembrance ceremony it's it's almost liturgical. It's very like a church service. You know to bow your head when the last post sounds. You you know when to walk on, when to walk off. And then with a little bit of guesswork, I worked out how the army works, which is um, people with stars are very high up, people with stripes are slightly lower down, and people with nothing you can probably dare to talk to. <laughs> <laughs> and so I was able to fall in with all of the protocol. And of course, I'm a British singer based in the Netherlands. It's very easy to get to France, Belgium, Germany. So I think they also found it was more convenient to ask me than to fly someone over from the UK. Yeah. And I've loved it. But what I've loved about it is not so much the music, because, of course, I vow to thee, my country is a very nice song and I have to sing Abide With Me and Amazing Grace and Going Home and then a lot of Vera Lynn. But it is quite tiring singing the same music over and over again. And on the other hand, it isn't tiring because I know that there's a strong chance that after a ceremony, I will be able to meet the veterans and hear a little bit about their experiences in the war and really hear things firsthand about what was going on in Normandy or in Arnhem, Operation Market Garden, or even in parts of Germany, and feel connected to this past. And it's those quiet moments with veterans which I look forward to much more than, you know, singing for Prince Charles or whatever, which is also nice, but it's not the, the real highlight is when when a veteran tells you their story and it's also quite an honour to hear a veteran's story because you know these things have caused them nightmares and, and have been with them all their lives. Yeah. And I guess even though you, it might be singing the same sort of music, you know that actually the, the music that you are singing is going to have such a, an emotional and personal impact on, on those people. Yes, and I think it's actually very important that it's the same music and it's familiar music. I think, particularly as we get older, there's a comfort in the familiar. And sure, I don't necessarily want to listen to the same music every day on Spotify. But if I'm singing a remembrance service, there's a comfort in knowing that I can expect to hear Abide With Me. And there's the uplifting moment when they play the anthems, when you know, okay, we're now going to return to normal life again. Yeah, come out of the atmosphere of the service, and I think it's, um, I think it's quite important that it stays the same. But of course, I am a singer, and I do like a technical challenge, so I always counterbalance it by by studying other things. 
So it's, yeah. like, you know, it's, a little, it's a little bit easy to have a career based on Abide With Me. <laughs> <laughs> you could probably quite easily do that without, but in terms of your own artistic career, having that balance. Yeah. That's it's interesting what you say, because I mean, I, I can't count the number of times I've sung An Ave Maria or Abide With Me and The Lord's My Shepherd at a funeral. And it can sort of feel quite monotonous and samey, but actually that sameness and that familiarity is so important to those people who are sort of mourning and experiencing it on their own sort of personal level. Yeah. Yeah. Fascinating. I mean, I think it's such a niche thing that you do. Yeah, it is, isn't it? <laughs> and at the same time, it's really cool. Yeah, I bet. And you're going to find yourself in a lot more interesting sort of situations and talking to a lot much more interesting people I think yeah and also it means singing instead of singing being about singing it's more a passport to something else yeah when you're there as the singer they tend to want to come and say hello and you know of course they talk about your singing but very quickly the conversations go elsewhere and because quite some of the veterans who fought in Normandy also fought at Operation Market Garden um, I've seen them in the Netherlands as well as in France and then of course for the First World War commemorations especially the bigger ones like Passchendaele you had second world war veterans present representing their fathers who had fought and sometimes died at the battles we had a friend called Patrick Churchill who was there on behalf of his father who had survived Passchendaele for example so I'd sung for him in Normandy and then met him a few weeks later um, in Ypres in Belgium for the the Passchendaele commemorations He's quite exceptional, actually. He married a German lady who had come to England to learn English, and her mother had been killed in the bombing of Dresden. And she became a nurse and ended up being the nurse for a blind RAF pilot who had been a navigator over Dresden on that night and making friends with her. And uh, this navigator gave her his navigator's torch um, as a sign of reconciliation. They were a very special couple. Tell us about your final track. My last track, in keeping with my eccentricity, is Coldplay's Someone Just Like This. And I heard this for the first time when I was singing at an event in Ho Chi Minh in Vietnam. The event was for the Christina Noble Children's Foundation, which is a charity that supports children in Vietnam and Mongolia. And they had children from their centre in Vietnam and also children from Mongolia at the event singing and dancing for the potential sponsors. And partway through dinner, we were all asked to wear a mask and to be a superhero. And these children ran in in masks and capes and sang along to Coldplay someone just like this whilst dancing. Now remember, these children are Vietnamese, they don't speak English, but they had learned the words and they gave such a good and focused performance. It was amazing. It almost put us professionals to shame, actually, the, the intensity of their focus and the love and the passion that they put into it was wonderful. 
Yeah. And Christina Noble is someone who's inspired me a lot. I met her in Westport singing a concert, Westport's in Ireland, singing a concert for her foundation. Um, Christina had a very rough ride in life. She was born in, I think, 1945 in Dublin, and she grew up in abject poverty. Her mother died when she was still a child. Her father was an alcoholic. Um, her, her brothers and sisters were put into care, but care in Ireland in the 50s wasn't very caring. And she ran away. She's lived on the streets. She's been gang raped. She's had an abusive marriage. And at some point in all of this, she had a dream and she dreamt that there were two children reaching out for her. And she knew from the dream that these children were in Vietnam, but she didn't know where Vietnam was. And then in the late 80s, she decided to go to Vietnam. At this time, she had stabilized. She was She'd had a loving relationship. She'd had children of her own. And she couldn't get rid of this dream. And she got to Vietnam and she stayed in a hotel. And she walked out of the hotel one morning and she saw the children that were from the dream. And she hesitated because she thought, this is important. There's something big here, but I know that if I follow this, my life will change. And she eventually approached them and she didn't really know what to do. But she, she thought that they were scratching themselves and she saw that they were actually eating the beetles that were on their skin. And she eventually built up trust with them and took them to her hotel room and, and cleaned them and bought them new clothes. And gradually she had a following of children and they, in the hotel they tried to stop her bringing these street children in because it wasn't respectable and she fought for them and she kept on fighting for them. And she's now helped over a million people out of poverty. She's amazing. foundation at all she's um there's two books by her bridge across my sorrows and mamatina and there's a film i think it's called noble i don't know i'm not very good with films but she's she's really her foundation is very pure and it's very focused on the children but it's also so nice because she knows what it is to live in poverty she knows what it is to sleep on the streets yeah she's really been through hell and she's made her life's work now to try and prevent other children going through hell 